spoke to you just a little bit last week about revival being a sovereign work of God, and that if that is the case, then um, the question might be asked, what is there what is there for us to do if revival is the sovereign work of God and God does it, can do it any time, anywhere He chooses to? Is there anything that we can do? And, and yes, we believe there is. We can tune our hearts, that is, to focus uh, in on God, on His Word, to allow Him to speak to us, to try to shut out the distractions of the world, the busyness of the world. As we tune our hearts, we search our hearts, as Maurice mentioned, searching our hearts, and sometimes we may not like what we find when we invite the Lord to search our hearts. That brings us to the third part, and that is the, the idea of extreme obedience. That is, Lord, would you help me to be willing to go to any extreme that obedience calls for? Whatever me being fully obedient to God's will might mean, whatever that might cost, Lord, help me to be willing to do that as we search our hearts. And then we wait in hope and confident expectation I had intended to use this as kind of an illustration last week, but it, it slipped my mind for whatever reason. And I, all of this kind of reminds me of Zacchaeus. There, there are a few in, in the Bible story, the gospel stories that we could look at, but it reminds me of Zacchaeus. I, I don't know how much he was searching his heart. I don't know what was going on in his spirit, but we know that Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus and he wanted to see Jesus. And so he put himself in a position where he would be able to see Jesus when Jesus passed by. And apparently he was ready when Jesus came because when Jesus came, he looked directly into the tree where Zacchaeus was sitting waiting for Jesus to pass by and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. Oh, the hunger that stirs in my heart to think about God coming near and passing by and saying, I want to come to your house today. I want to come to your house today. I've got to be honest with you and tell you that when I think about revival and I read and I hear, incidentally, you may not have seen this, but the revival at Asbury has uh, appeared on CNN now. That's, you know, at first it was, it was on local uh, television stations there in Lexington, Kentucky, near where Asbury is, and then it got, it spread, it showed up on an NBC um, Twitter feed, I think it was, and then I saw just yesterday that it's, it's, been on, I don't know how much they've talked about it on CNN, but it, they've, they've mentioned it on CNN. It's been on Fox News. And um, 
that's good in a way. In a way, it disturbs me a little bit. I don't, um, I don't think that the work of God ought to be sensationalized. Um, there's also always a danger that when things like that begin to happen, people who are merely curious, or as I heard one man uh, a pastor friend of mine refer to the spiritual tourists. Um, those who have a mild interest in seeing what's going on, to just say, hey, it's, this is where it's happening, this is where it's at, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to show up. Um, I have, I've, I've told you this before about me, you know, if you've been around for long, that I, I lean to to being an emotional an emotionally expressive person that's okay um, i i enjoy when the spirit of god moves and blesses um, but i've i've learned i've needed to learn to steward that um, to be to be watchful and careful that um God's work in me goes beyond goosebumps and shivers uh, and those kinds of things. Because um, quite honestly, if, if you are this kind of a person, then you will know what I'm talking about. It's very easy to get, to get caught up in what's going on around you and then just sort of ride the, the current of that and be caught up in it, and enjoy it, and, and uh, I, I certainly want to be careful that it goes deeper, that it goes beyond that. I don't want to see myself, or anyone that I love, or the church that I'm associated with, I don't want to see any of us merely stirred, but not changed. But to see the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, to bring us to a place of openness and willingness. And I believe that is the, that is the potential for what God wants to do, that in, in this kind of setting where we sense that, you know, God's presence is always with us, but there are times when by His Spirit He draws near in a special way and manifests His presence and lets us know that He is near. And He does that for a reason. He does that for a reason. <clears throat> One of the things that has impressed itself on me so deeply as I've thought about what's been taking place is the, the willingness of people to simply sit and wait before the Lord. My understanding is when the recent revival began to take place at Asbury, that there was a fairly normal, in fact a very normal chapel service. Um, with preaching from a speaker who I've been told struggled a little bit in the presentation of his message. But there was a small number of students who 
were hungry and were willing to just sit and wait and seek God. And uh, I am told that, that throughout the day that that kind of that spirit, that attitude began to sort of spread until people that were in their classrooms began to hear that, that there's just there's something going on and began to be drawn to the auditorium where that was taking place until that evening uh, of the first day that it started happening that the, uh, the auditorium began to fill up and until then after a day or two of that just continuing, um, there were there were thousands, and now there have been lines of people waiting to get into overflow auditoriums. My son drove down with his wife from Cincinnati to be on the campus of Asbury uh, for a while one evening earlier this week, and um, and spent some time there and mentioned to me how. You could sense there was just something there, a moving of God's Spirit. And um, I uh, want to be willing to wait before the Lord, to wait quietly, to wait confidently in hope. I was going to talk to you this morning about being a notable church from the passage in Acts chapter 4 after Peter and John had gone to the temple and God had used them to heal the lame man and after he was healed he jumped and went running and leaping and praising God into the temple and when that happened Peter and uh, John found that they had an audience ready and they began to preach, and 2,000 more people were added to the church on that occasion. And this brought them to the attention of the, of the religious authorities. And they brought them before them. They noticed, these, hey, these are men that have been with Jesus. But they wanted to put a stop to all of the Jesus talk that had been going on and, and to kill that movement. But they said, what are we going to do with these men? Because that a notable sign, a notable miracle has taken place, we cannot deny. In other words, there was something about what God was doing, a, a supernatural, divine moving and working of God that brought them to the attention of everybody in the world, and nobody, nobody could deny. There were people who were excited about what was happening, and they wanted to hear what Peter and John had to say, and then there were the religious authorities who weren't so excited about it, but they said, we can't do much to these guys because we can't deny that something amazing has taken place by their hand. <clears throat> and so, the question that I ask myself is, when I see these men, Peter and John and the others of the apostles that were followers of Jesus, this, this ragtag group of uneducated Galilean fishermen and uh, then maybe a tax collector and a, another who was a political activist, a, a zealot, the Bible tells us, how did they 
become what they became? How did they go from this group of people following this Messiah, following Jesus around, to the point where the whole world is taking notice of them and they're turning the world upside down? There are two primary ingredients and I don't know that I want to preach this to you so much as just walk through it very quickly, but the two primary ingredients that brought these men, these disciples, to the place where they were able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to turn the world upside down for Jesus is, one, discipleship, and two, divine transformation. Discipleship and divine transformation. The first, discipleship, um, looking primarily like uh, the verse that uh, we find in Matthew 16, 24, the words of Jesus, where he said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we see there three primary ingredients. One, a total surrender to Jesus, a total surrender to God, that is the denial of self. I am rejecting my ambitions, my plans for my life, and I'm turning it all over to follow Jesus. There is also total commitment, total commitment. Jesus said, not only must you, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, but you must take up your cross. And the language that Jesus was using to his disciples would have been shocking in their ears. We, uh, in our day, have so embellished and, and beautified the cross, if I can use that term, that it doesn't mean to us what it would have meant to Jesus' followers. But to Jesus, it would have been shocking to hear this language of, take up your cross. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. In other words, it's a death sentence. It's a total commitment of self, no matter what the cost. Total surrender, total commitment, and then third, a total obsession. A total obsession. We may not like to think about following Jesus in these terms, but that's exactly what it must be, a total obsession. When Jesus said to follow me, what he intended for his disciples was exactly what they did, and they said on, on some occasions, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. They left their jobs, seemingly some of them left their families behind, and they went literally from place to place having nowhere to sleep at night just relying on the goodness of people around them to provide for them, they were totally obsessed with following Jesus. And friends, I believe that when Jesus calls us to him, to discipleship, he calls us still to no less than this. Total surrender, total commitment, and total obsession you may recognize this picture as a picture of the Alamo in Texas. And there's been some controversy in recent days about the story of the Alamo. But if you will, uh, if you will pardon me for using this as an illustration, I still think it's a great story, the story of what took place at the Alamo, whether how... Uh, you know, the accuracy of it or not, whether we want to call it legend, I don't know. When I was 
a kid and learning these things that was still taught as, as history. And now they're saying, well, we're not so sure this is really history. Some of it's maybe legendary, but whatever the case, uh, in the last days of the, of the battle for the Alamo, Colonel uh, William Travis uh, had been given the order by the enemy forces of the Mexican troops, had been given the order to, to surrender or else his entire force would be killed. I think less than 200 men gathered there, some military and some simply volunteer forces, volunteer soldiers. And uh, William Travis, having sent someone to try to break through the enemy lines, to try to get help, to get reinforcements, knowing that it was unlikely that anybody would be able to come in time to relieve them, called the men together, and you know how that story goes. He explained to them the situation that they were in and how they were surrounded by uh, the thousands of, of Mexican troops under the command of, of uh, Santa Ana and uh, said, if we stay here, we are committing ourselves to give up our lives in defense of the Alamo. And you know how the story goes. He took his uh, sword, his saber, and drew a line in the sand and said, everyone who's willing to give their life in the defense of the Alamo, and I've, uh, I've heard different things. One version of the story says that everyone crossed the line. Another story said everyone but one man got up and crossed the line and committed themselves to stay and giving themselves, giving their lives in the defense of the Alamo. Uh, such notables as Davy Crockett were there supposedly giving his life. And then also Jim Bowie, who was not quite as well known, but almost. And, and uh, as I understand, Jim Bowie at that time was so sick he had to be carried from his room in a cot to be present for that meeting and he requested that those standing near him would help him carry him across the line. And sadly as I look at the church and I I don't I don't want this to be the kind of message where you sense that I'm preaching at you. Uh, or, or trying to unchristianize or, or uh, play on your emotions in any sense. But as I, as I look at the church, as I look at, at sometimes myself, I sense that our following of Christ, our discipleship to, to Christ has been so often only a partial surrender, only a partial commitment to Him, only a partial obsession with Him. To the point that at times we'll follow and serve Jesus, maybe when we feel like it, maybe when the Spirit is stirring us a little bit. But that other times we have other business, other activities of life. And friends, I, can I tell you kindly this morning that Jesus still calls us to this place of total surrender, total commitment, and total obsession to the point where it's exactly like Colonel Travis telling his men, if you step across this line, you're saying, I am giving my life, and I am not expecting to get out of this alive. That's what we're called to as Christians. It is discipleship. And all too often, I'm afraid that the church is no longer notable in the world that we live in. Because too many times the people in the church have been satisfied with only partial surrender, partial commitment, and partial obsession. Not only is there discipleship, but there's also divine transformation. 
divine transformation. Friends, if you look at the, at the life of the disciples before Pentecost, now I know that Jesus was at work in their lives. Jesus was, was forming them, was shaping them, was teaching them. But much of what we see as a divine transformation that took place did not really come to fruition until after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in their lives in His fullness. Three things that I think are, uh, are uh, essential ingredients to, di- to this divine transformation. One is intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy with Jesus. Friends, if we only pray, if we only seek God, if we only spend time with Him during those moments when we're keenly aware of our needs, then, then friends, we're missing something in our Christian walk. I spoke to you about this a couple of weeks ago. Yes, it's okay to pray about our problems. Yes, it's okay to bring our needs to Jesus. But our, communi- our communication, our communion with Jesus must go far beyond just saying, Lord, help me with my problems and help Aunt Susie with her sore back and whatever. There must be those times when we sit quietly at Jesus' feet in God's presence, listening to Him through His Word, listening to Him from the voice of His Spirit, and learning His teaching and observing His life. And I believe at times simply enjoying being in His presence. Enjoying being in His presence. Intimacy with Jesus. There's also the encounter with the resurrected Jesus. The encounter with the resurrected Jesus, I believe, is a primary and essential ingredient to the divine transformation that took place in the life of the disciples. Because, you see, before the resurrection of Jesus, they believed that they had found the Messiah. But after they experienced for themselves the reality of the resurrected Jesus, even doubting Thomas said, my Lord and my God... It went beyond a, a belief, an intellectual belief that saying, we, we believe we found the Messiah. We believe this is the one. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him bleed out. They laid him in the tomb, and they did not expect to ever see him again. But when they encountered Jesus after he rose from the grave, it changed something in their lives till they knew their, their belief turned into a settled conviction. The third essential ingredient of the divine transformation is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The result of this being purity and power. People talk a lot, and there's been debate about exactly what took place and what happened on the day of Pentecost, but I think it was Peter who summed it up best at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 when he talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentile believers. And he said, what happened to the the Gentile believers, those in the household of Cornelius, is the same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost, that God, who knows the hearts, made no distinction between them and us and purified our hearts by faith. 
It is the purification of our hearts that is what matters primarily. It is not a, a, a manifestation of some uh, spiritual sign or phenomena. It is the purifying of our hearts. And friends, what follows that is what Jesus promised when he spoke to his disciples and he said, you, he'd given them the great commission already. They knew that they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But Jesus said, you wait, you go back to Jerusalem and wait until the promise of the father, until you have been endued with power. And they waited until that day when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they went out from that place and preached the word of God with boldness and with power. And thousands heard the message and were saved and their lives were changed. You see, friends, it's Pentecost that would bring together the first two ingredients, intimacy with Jesus and the encounter with the resurrected Christ. It's Pentecost that brings those two together in a demonstrable way. <clears throat> the, the results of this for the disciples were four, fourfold, I believe. Do you remember at the beginning we spoke about positioning ourselves. Last week I talked about positioning ourselves, talked about being having our hearts tuned in and having uh, uh, searching our hearts and then extreme obedience and then uh, 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 the final one is waiting in hope for what God wants to do. Turns out as I look at the disciples and, and the, the notable work that God did through them, what happened through their discipleship and through their divine transformation, they had hearts that were tuned in to God. They were able to be sensitive to the moving and the direction of the Holy Spirit as God would lead them. They were tuned in. They had a clarity of heart. You know, I for this point, when I was speaking of positioning, I used the word searching our hearts. But you see what happens when you search your heart and you get your heart clear, you have clarity. You have clearness. They were obedient. They were obedient to the extreme. They were obedient to the point of death. And they lived in expectation of what God was going to do. They were able to hear the voice of God leading them, the voice of the Spirit directing them, and, and to say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And over and over again throughout the book of Acts, we read about these things happening. And all of this to say, as, I, as I've thought about this and studied and and wondered exactly how. I know the, the preaching the last couple of weeks maybe hasn't been quite like normal. Um, but it's just got me asking, where, where am I? Where are we as a church? 
And as we think about the, the total commitment and surrender and obsession that discipleship calls for, and we think about what happens in divine transformation, and I understand that, that discipleship, the decision to be a discipleship, you realize the responsibility is primarily on us. Jesus calls us, and we are responsible to respond to his call for discipleship. God's response to our commitment to discipleship is the transformation that he brings about in our lives by the power of His Spirit. And what I wonder as I look at myself and as I look at at conditions in the church is where are we lacking in these things? As I said a few moments ago, I don't want to preach at anybody. I don't want to unchristianize or or cause you to question something that you are confident God has done something for you. I don't I don't want to do that. But as I look at what is happening some places and what has happened in the past and what I believe God can do still here, it makes me wonder Where are we lacking? Where am I lacking? Lord, is it in the area of divine transformation? In other words, is my Christianity something that is, how do I say this, that is mostly human? In other words, I've kind of decided I'm going to follow Jesus, but... I haven't really experienced that divine transformation that God wants to bring about in our lives. Say, well, if God has to do that, then what what can we do? Well, what we do is the total surrender, total commitment, total obsession. And it seems to me that if there is something lacking in our hearts in the area of divine transformation, then possibly there might be something lacking somewhere in our level of commitment or surrender or obsession with Jesus. I'm going to close with this as quickly as I can. In Hosea chapter 7, the prophet speaks about God's people And he calls them a cake not turned. A cake not turned. Too much heat in some places and not enough in others. Heard a preacher tell a story about he he had to work a, a job for a while and he said he was the manager of a of of his brother in law's bakery donut shop and in the area where they lived there they were particularly known for a certain type of cake donut it was a fried cake donut and 
that was that was kind of what they they were reputed for and most of the people that came that's what they wanted and this this preacher that said he was working for his brother-in-law he he had gotten to the point where he was the manager of the shop and and one day there was a situation where the the person who normally made those donuts was not able to be there and so his brother-in-law the owner said to him do you think you can handle making those donuts? You know, the, the, apparently there was something a little bit tricky about making them. You had to watch them just right and, and watch for the color and, and wait. And at a certain point when the color was just right, you had to turn them and, and everything had to be just right. And that preacher said, oh, yeah, sure. I think I've, I've watched them do it. I've seen it. Time, you know, I've seen them. I, yeah, I think I can do it. I think I can handle it. <clears throat> So he said, you know, bakers have to get up early, early, early in the morning. And so he was up early in the morning and at, there at the bakery and, and, and going through the process of making these, these special donuts and getting them in the oil and, and going through all that was necessary to make them. And, and uh, he said they came out so, looking so pretty. They were so nice. He said they looked just, just like they were supposed to look. He was so pleased with himself and pleased with, the, uh, with having done this on his own. And he got everything ready and everything prepared to open that morning. And they opened up early and customers began to come in. And, and as usual, that one particular type of donut that everybody liked, I don't know whether it's an old-fashioned or whatever, but anyway, they, they were starting to sell those. And, and he said it wasn't very long until across the room, he heard somebody say really loud. He said he wasn't even polite about it. He's just very loud. Everybody could hear, oh, yuck. And he said he looked to investigate to find out what the problem was, and the man had bitten into one of those donuts, and the outside that was just so beautifully done and looked so nice, the inside was just dough, dough. And apparently every single one of those donuts that morning were beautiful on the outside, but not done on the inside. I believe God, by His Spirit, wants to do something in our hearts. And I'm simply asking and seeking God, Lord, what, what do you need to do in me? What is lacking in me. Some of you, I'm sure, are more sensitive than others. Some of you struggle, perhaps, to maintain faith. Let me encourage you, if you believe that God has done something for you, don't let go of your confidence in what God has done for you. Don't surrender that. Don't give up your faith in what God has done for you. Yet at the same time, ask God to search your heart. And if the results, if the fruit of your life does not reflect what God, what you believe God has done in your life, then pray that he will show you what is lacking. Let's stand together, please.